I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. Uh, I'm so, so happy to have you here. Thank you for coming back every week and just caring and and I just love getting to meet you all. So let's keep that going. I'm back in Los Angeles. I'm back home. I'm actually here for at least three weeks, which is crazy. I, I don't think I've been at home for three weeks for a long time, maybe since last Christmas, and maybe even four or five weeks. We'll see what, what the new year brings. But I'm back. I'm in my podcast room at my home office recording this intro like I, I do when I can. And this week I was, well, last week, if you listened to the last episode with Dana Chanel, I was just coming, like turning the corner on being in Atlanta and Miami and that same trip, I found my way to Washington, D.C. And I went to Washington because the website uh, politico.com gave me an award. I know that's really, really amazing. I was super, super surprised uh, when they reached out and um, we did a video that they recorded uh, in California. And then there was the event. So the event was just an all day annual summit that I heard a lot of people say was their favorite event of that kind of the year who kind of were regulars. So I was there all day and it was really, really fun and interesting. And what a day to be there because it was um, the day that Nancy Pelosi and her team basically said, yeah, we are going to suggest that there are articles of impeachment and that, yes, we're going to move ahead with this that same morning. So maybe two hours later, once that press conference ended, Nancy Pelosi was in the building on that stage and we were all a few feet away listening to her talk about making history that day. And it was just a it was a it was a mixed crowd, too, because it was a political event. So it wasn't like it was all people thinking the exact same thing. So I think it was really, really interesting to be there. And one of my favorite panels was with three black women who have major roles on three of the top Democratic campaigns right now. So there was Simone Sanders, who is a an advisor to, to Joe Biden. It was Alencia Johnson. She's in public engagement for Elizabeth Warren. And then Nina Smith, who is the traveling secretary for Pete Buttigieg. You might remember that I interviewed Pete earlier this year, and I also interviewed Nina very briefly on that same day. It was it was off the cuff and an exciting episode for me to tape because I, I'm not a journalist, so it wasn't like I was on the beat. You know, I had been invited to moderate a town hall sort of event in Oakland for Pete by his team. I was neutral. I had not and still have not endorsed anyone, but I was there to ask questions and to be transparent and to be honest in my questions about race relations and everything. And afterwards, I was able to interview them both. And so this panel of the three ladies interviewed by uh, Laura Baron lopez from Politico was really great. It was just, um, I learned and we all learned that they have these women at these different campaigns have this group chat and they talk about things to kind of lift each other up and support each other, even though they are competing against each other. 
And they talk about things like when Kamala Harris left the race, how that made them feel and what that meant to them. And I felt got the impression that there was a a somberness to it that uh, was really, really compelling. And so I love that panel. And I want to say hi to everyone from that panel. If you're listening, I know that we were able to talk afterwards. And so if you're listening to this episode as your first episode, thank you for tuning in and continued uh, success on the road ahead. We all have the same mission, I think. We, meaning I'm going to speak for myself and those those ladies, we all have the same mission of getting our candidate, whoever that may be, into the office. So very cool. So I have to get into this episode because, oh my goodness, man, if you're here, you've seen most likely the title of this episode. You know who I'm interviewing I don't even know how to start with this because it's Ellen freaking Pompeo. I think I might title the episode that because that's who it is. She is Meredith Grey. She plays Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy. And no matter what country you're in, what age you are, what background you have, you've at least heard of Grey's Anatomy, which is in itself... I mean, maybe there are a few people who have not, but most of the people listening to this, I think, would have at least heard of it. And that in itself is such a testament to what a phenomenon it has become over the past 15 or so years, 16 seasons. They're in the 16th season now. And Ellen has been, um, she's the title character and she is, I, I remember watching in real time the pilot episode 15 or so years ago. And she's been on, you know, almost every episode, if not all. And it's just, just an incredible body of work. You know, that longevity is so impressive to me. And um, let me tell you how it happened. So a few months ago, I can't remember exactly when, because I probably fainted at the time. I noticed that Ellen liked something on Instagram that I posted. I can't remember exactly what it was, but she liked something that I posted. And I was like, what? How does she even know? where, who I am or to even look in my direction. And I went to her page and I did the thing where you kind of search to see who's following you. She was following me. (laughs) So I was like, oh my goodness, when did that happen? So that was cool. And I, over the course of a few months, I kind of got the nerve and I said, hey, will you, would you like to be on the podcast? This new podcast that I'm doing, uh, Your First Million. And when she was able to do it, she was like, yeah, I'd love to. Sure. Let's make it happen. Easy as that. It was like an instinct, I think, from her that she kind of knew that I would, wasn't crazy, um, (laughs) hopefully, and that it might be interesting. And I don't know if she's heard any episodes, but yeah, that's how it happened. We planned it out and I've known that we were going to do this for about two months and I've just been... I'm so giddy and excited to tell everybody, tell you all who are loyal listeners or even new listeners that this was happening because I just couldn't wait to dig into this conversation. And let me tell you, the adrenaline and sort of the even the calmness from this conversation that washed over me is still with me. It was recorded at her house. It was just me and a couple of my traveling mics that I use with all of my interviews that are not in the podcast room. And it was just one-on-one. And Ellen, as you'll hear, I'm going to get right to it. I'm not going to let you all wait too much longer. But as you'll hear, she is honest. She is transparent. She is reflective. It's an interesting kind of study, a constant study of character, of her own character. So at one point in this interview, she talks about how she is really good at, she knows that she's really good at studying character for her, for her art, for her acting. That's what she can do with kind of with her eyes closed. But I think what I got from this is that she's constantly doing that for herself. She's constantly, at least from what I was able to see, she's constantly reflecting on who she is, what does she stand for, what has she learned, what can be tweaked, and, and et cetera. It's really, for, some, for someone like me who's so incredibly curious about people, it was just like a, a playground because we got to talk about a lot of different subjects and she was so giving in her answers. And, um, you know, I'm not going to stretch this out too much longer. Just listen in. Just listen in. 
I cannot wait for you all to hear this. As always, I will see you on the other side. And I'm not even going to interrupt this episode with an ad. It's just going to go all the way through. And then I'll tell you about my book or something just as cool on the other side of that. Oh my goodness. Here we go. Hi, I'm Alan Pompeo. I am an actor, a producer. I direct occasionally, and my most important job is I'm a mama to three beautiful babies. So I'm over here, like, fainting all over the place. Can I say that I'm at your home? Of course. I'm at Ellen's home right now. If you don't hear from me, <laughs> uh, this is my last uh, missive because I, I am deceased. Um <laughs> And I just really appreciate you allowing this interview and, and being so wonderful and, and setting it up. I have a million questions. I won't ask them all. I'll tell you the reason I wanted you on this particular show, Your First Million, is because two years ago almost, I read your your Hollywood Reporter piece. And if you haven't heard, read that, please go back now. Stop this recording. Go read it. January 2018, where you were just so blatantly honest about how you negotiated your way to being the highest paid dramatic actress on television. Have you always been that outspoken and that upfront or did something happen that kind of turned that light on for you? Absolutely not. I guess I've always I've always had a big personality. But I think I, I've said this before that, you know, as a young woman, probably due to my circumstances growing up, I didn't have a lot of confidence. So the idea of speaking up for myself, no, it was not something that, that, I, that I've done since the beginning of time. Certainly not. I think that's a learned skill and uh, it takes maturity. It takes confidence and it it probably takes some some you know encouragement from some other women before you you feel that you have the power and that that's okay to to do that i wonder if you I, I don't know if there's an answer to this but i do wonder if you're able to see how much of a ripple effect that would have had just on so many people feeling well, empowered i think i definitely see obviously a piece of it i i don't know if i'm seeing the whole picture but from my perspective and my point of view is very interesting, the the uh, fallout from that article, because I did feel the enormity of it. I received so many pats on the back from people outside my circle, complete strangers, you know, would come up to me in restaurants, servers and farmers and and women from all different walks of life would come up to me crying and hugging me and thanking me for the article and say it empowered them and it changed their point of view. And I was obviously so grateful for that kind of reception. And then I had people who I admire in business or you could say high profile people who are admired for their strength and their business acumen from um, Billie Jean King to Jay-Z reach out and tell me how powerful the article was. And I should be so grateful for that kind of credit as well, because, you know, those people ha have a completely different perspective. They're not necessarily in, you know, actors on television shows. Right. So it appeared to me that it hit all different groups of people. But what was remarkable about it and probably not surprising to a lot of people is people in my in my close, close circle were really very quiet about it. People who I work with didn't say a thing about it. I think that, you know, and I don't know, I can't speak for how other people feel about or felt about reading that article, but it, it just occurred to me that people who aren't in my everyday circle in my life found it really empowering and really loved it. Mm. And then I guess you could say I felt, for lack of a better word, the haters come out sort of in my immediate circle. Do you think that, I mean, we all experience life from our point of view? Yes. That's what we're able to do. Do you think that it? some people might have thought that you were not accurate? 
in your portrayal of what happened? Or I don't think that people felt that I, I was not accurate. I think that possibly, and again, I don't want to speak for other people. I don't know. But in thinking about this and, and why people come at you or don't give you credit for your success or whatever it is, is people may take things personally, right? If we're emotionally attached to something, we may take it personally. And I think that that article, maybe to some people, I don't know, uh, but it's run through my head that maybe they took that as I was sort of claiming credit for the whole show or that this was, you know, I deserve this and no one else deserves this and that this this show is all about me, mm. which certainly isn't the case. Obviously, it's a huge ensemble show mm. and there's been so many people in and out of the show throughout the years who have uh, contributed to it beyond measure. But again, maybe they're too close to it and, and they couldn't take the article for what it was. And maybe some maybe some people did. You yeah. know, it's unfair to say everybody close to me didn't right. take it in a positive way. It's just my my experience. Um, but you know, that article specifically was speaking to the relationship between me and the studio who's paying me and the tactics that they use to devalue me, whether it was on paper or emotionally, to make me feel like I was delusional for asking for this amount of money, regardless of how much money the show has generated. Like gaslighting, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm going to assume, but it doesn't seem like you think this is, even in saying that what you just said is an act of bravery, but I think it is. I think it's like, it's very, it's very interesting because it, it's associated with the leverage and the power that you do have. You undoubtedly have it because while you, it's not all about you and nothing ever hopefully is, your name is on it and it's enough about you. That obviously, because you got the deal, at least from where I'm standing, they had to make the deal. It's enough about you that it is important to keep you on. So it's really admirable to kind of protect how everyone else is feeling about it. But you do get to have your feelings about it and you do get to not brag. You can brag if you want, but you get to say this is how it happened in my world and this is what I did. Yeah, well, really, it was like about that moment where and it was very sort of in the moment. You know, I had no idea what that article would become. Right. It was a very sort of innocent. We want to come and interview you about this history making deal. You know, my goal in every situation is just to try to be as present as possible and to try to be candid and have a genuine connection with whoever is interviewing me. So I guess depending on the skill of the interviewer, they're able to get what they get. And no one else, anyone else who respond, who responded or didn't respond to that article was on those phone calls with me when the studio was saying what they were saying to me, devaluing me. No one knows similarly how I don't know how they view it. No one else was there and no one else knows my experience mm. and how I was made to feel. But really, the tactic of the studio the whole entire time was that we have this male lead of the show. And so we don't need to pay you because even though your character and this is really what it all boiled down to in a nutshell is even though your character is the name of the show, if you want to walk, you can walk because we have him. Hmm. So the man is more valuable than you. Hmm. And we don't need you because we have him. So that was like the bully in the schoolyard. And then the second he was gone, I was like, oh, what are you so going to say now? What are you going to say now? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's that whole article in a nutshell was all about yeah. that. They'd been telling me for years, we don't need you. Yeah. We have him. Yeah. We don't need you. What is, and, the, what and, is that relationship like? Because you you work there now. You are in contract. I don't need details and day to day, but I mean, I would imagine that there are some and I, I will stop by saying I'm bringing all this up. You, you didn't bring all this up. I'm bringing it all up. So it's not like you're sitting around fuming about all of this. Right, right, right. Thank you for that. Uh, and, yes. and, I, and, I, and I will say that, you know, the studio, despite our, listen, every negotiation is tough, right? Yeah. So that's their job. Yeah. Their job is to save money, right? And they do it by whatever means necessary. I, I don't necessarily think, I think to the credit of Time's Up and Me Too, these are very complex topics, but I, I don't know that now that things that that were said to me could 
could be said said. anymore. Thank you for that. But also, you know, I had a a team, obviously. I wasn't in the negotiating room. I have this incredible team of people, uh, women and men. One of my lawyers is is a woman and, and the rest of my team are men. But obviously I didn't do that alone. And then I had the encouragement of Shonda Rhimes. So it, it really took two women to really champion me and say, this is okay. This is what we're going for. Mm. And uh, so yeah. it takes a village for sure. Yeah. I don't claim to do anything by myself ever. There's a couple of places I want to go with this interview and one is to talk about your first, like go back to talk about your first million because that's where it all started. But I wanted, to, I was also curious about now, like you've said in the past that it, it's kind of a strategy for you to be on the show. And also you I, I read that you said before those negotiations, you were looking at, hey, making great money and, you know, have children and, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And, but are you able to kind of enjoy any of the, the craft of it. I know acting to you isn't, isn't as fun, but are, what part of the craft do you really enjoy? Well, I love to really like have fun and play. And I love when new people come on the show hmm. um, and getting, to, obviously getting to act with new people. And that's not to say anything negative about people who yeah. have been on the show yes. uh, because I have a, a, a fondness and affection for them, yeah. obviously, because we're like a family. But I think it's quite normal and natural. That's why people don't stay on shows, you know, for so long because they want to have different experiences and interact with different energies. Absolutely. So anytime there's new energy on the show, that's when I'm having the most fun. Well, your face lit up when you said it. Yes. It's very genuine. And again, please do not think if she's saying she likes new people, it doesn't mean she likes, I mean, the, the, the minefield you have to walk in order to just, talk to people and, and interview and go and, and do your job. Do you ever get just exhausted by that? No, I think, you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you can't lose sight of that yeah. ever. And if, if that's the downside of me having all these amazing privileges is, is to having to be careful about my words, it's okay. Because I think, especially for someone like me, who's so sort of passionate and off the cuff and truthful to a fault. I'm a Scorpio. Yes. Um, I think, Fellow you know, Scorpio. Having to measure my words is probably a good thing. Yeah. So it's, it's that new energy. Do you think of it at all? Like um, it being like this long running play where that. Well, it's interesting that you say that to me, Arlen, because I probably season, uh, I don't know, like five or six. It was before I had my daughter, but I was getting very close to being up for my first negotiation. And I had dinner with Al Pacino. And as I you said, do, <laughs> as one does. As one does. Um, and, uh, and it was my first time meeting him. I was friends with his girlfriend at the time. And, uh, you know, obviously who isn't a fan of Al? Absolutely. Um, a fellow Italian-American. And I, and I said to him, you know, Al, I really don't know what to do. I'm making great money. People love this show. I'm approaching 40. I'm scared to sort of go out there after having been typecast on this show as this character. Being 40 years old and being typecast, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do, but I can't imagine continuing on this show and playing the same character. I really just makes me feel like not an artist, like a sellout as the age old trope goes. And he said to me, you know, Ellen, I've been playing Salome my whole life. And that's what theater actors used to do. That's what the Roman theater actors did. The Greek theater actors did from the beginning of time. Theater actors went on stage every single night, night after night, year after year. And that's the history of acting. Mm. And to give that same performance over and over and over is where the skill lies. So I have goosebumps right now. So I yeah. imagine when he said that to you, it and really so, resonated. Yes, of course. So that always stuck with me. And I was so grateful for that piece of wisdom. I mean, these are like angels on earth who come by and drop in pieces of wisdom for us to take. And we should always take those nuggets with us. And, and hold them in our pocket as gifts because that's really what they are. And so 
he sort of gave me the freedom to not feel bad about what I was doing, coming from obviously one of the greats of all time. Yeah. Um, had anyone else said that to me, I would have said, eh. <laughs> but you know, one of my acting idols says it to me and here I am 16 years later. Yes. <laughs> and it, you probably don't know this. There's no reason you would, but aside from Grey's Anatomy and for my all, all of my life, my favorite show has been General Hospital, which I know you all film next to. We do. It's very nostalgic for my mom and I, and it's just this whole thing. But I talk to some of their actors and I just think about like, that's five days a week, so much they have to do. And it's just over and over and over and over and over again. And it's just like, and one of them, he said it on, on tape so I can say it, like Steve Burton, who, who has like been on the show for 20 years or something. Who does he play? He plays Jason Morgan. He's like the the motorcycle riding hitman. I don't, I don't watch it, but I used to watch it when I was yeah. little. I used to race home from school. Yeah. Well, to- he, he left the show for like four or five years and mm-hmm. I asked him about it. I was like, he left us, you know, because I was being kind of silly. But he was like, I couldn't. It was every day and I couldn't. And they're doing 80 pages a day. Yeah. It's like I couldn't separate myself from the character. I had a life to live, you know. So it's it's that. But then you think about this legacy. You're also leaving this 16 seasons. I guess it's 15 years uh, if technically. And I think about two things. I think about all of the actors, day players who like you've made their life by just saying hi to them. You don't even know it. Right. Day players, actors, all of the technical people on the show over the years who have been given, who've had kind of that business that they've gotten and just this sort of this legacy. But then I think about you talk about these negotiations in my mind that my mind's eye, the vision that I get when you're talking about having these phone calls is every every man in business, like every high stake business Guys are probably calling each other all these crazy names or probably doing these dirty deeds and tricks and everything else. It just happens. They don't have to kind of atone for it publicly. And it happens across television, film, but also in other industries, and especially in the world that I'm in, in the financial world, investing world. So, yeah, there's just it's just so much. It's so intriguing to me as someone who's... um, on the outside looking in and looking at all these pieces come together. But I think ultimately 99% of the people listening and people out in the world world are going to remember, okay, how did you make me feel when I watched that episode or when you touched on this topic or when you made me laugh or when you made me cry? And I wonder if that is, is that enough? Is that the salve that makes everything okay? Or is it, I guess 20 million a year doesn't hurt. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> well, it, it certainly should be enough mm-hmm. um, because as actors, you're a storyteller, right? So what are you telling those stories for? I guess that's up to the individual. Are you telling the stories to get attention or are you telling the stories to touch people? To because you've been touched by other people who have told stories and you know how whatever movie is your favorite or, you know, my daughter loves Titanic and and she loves Stranger Things and those things bring her so much joy and make her scared and happy and feel all of those, you know, emotions. At the end of the day, our vessel is an emotional one. We could only hope, right, as human beings. Um There's a lot of anger in the world and there's a lot of hate. Clearly, we're seeing that now. But at the core, I think people want to feel, even if they they make the emotionally wrong choice to feel hatred and anger, as human beings, our vessel still desires the need to feel. And I think that entertainment allows people to feel that. And um, anger isn't always a bad thing. It's a necessary emotion, right? So to make people feel should absolutely be enough. That should definitely be satisfying. And then, you know, you have to balance that with challenging yourself and, you know, knowing when it's time to move on and challenge yourself more. There's a balancing act between it all. And we're pretty lucky on Grey's because not only is the show still wildly successful, like people that I know who I think are very cool and hip, still love the show. And I'm like, really? You still love it? So we have that. And also we have the benefit of having this platform and being able to do some good with it. 
to bring up topics like the medical industry and what's happening in medicine and what's happening with pharmaceuticals and and social justice and, and, and what happens to women with respect to sexual assault. We have this amazing platform to get a little political. Mm. So that's been quite fulfilling as well. One day, whatever that day may be, when Grays is over and dun, dun, dun. everyone calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone clutched their pearls right now. <laughs> it's okay. Um, Take off the pearls. Pearls are, I don't know if pearls are chic, <laughs> except when Pharrell wears them in their Chanel oh, does pearls. He wear pearls. Well, if they're Chanel pearls oh. with this double C's, it's, it's, you know, it's a different, it's yeah, a different vibe. I got you. When that day comes, whenever it is, what will you miss the most? Um, Probably the routine of that routine, that steadiness in my life. You know, I'm incredibly spoiled. Most actors never know what their next job is. And I will say that emotionally I'm very spoiled because that is one emotion that I do remember from my early days as an actor as like, oh my God, this movie's over. What am I going to do next? And I hated that feeling of uncertainty. I don't know what that is in me. Um, I think I grew up without a mother and and every day felt uncertain. Mm. The ground underneath my feet felt incredibly shaky every minute because you don't have that stabilizing force. I had other stabilizing forces. I know sisters and aunts and uncles and incredibly wonderful people, my grandmother. But that, that normal foundation that most people have, I did not have, right? So that uncertainty... I think was a foundation of my life. And then when I grew up in my professional life, that being uncertain didn't sit well with me. So I grew to love as much as I may have fought it in the beginning, the repetitiveness, you want to be an actor and you want to be an artist and you want to move on to different things. And I grew to love the stability of knowing that I had that job to go to. And I've been incredibly lucky in that I have not faced what other actors face, which is um, not knowing if the show will get picked up, mm-hmm. really worrying about the ratings and, oh my goodness, are we going to get picked up? Are we not going to get picked up? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to be able to pay my mortgage? This show has always been extremely wildly successful. And I've ne- we've never had to worry. Every season, it's like, we're definitely getting picked up. Yeah. You know, so um, that's been a privilege. That, very rare. I, that that's very rare yeah. and that, I, that I'm at least aware of. And I can't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not in my nature to sort of be a spoiled brat about it. And there's the flip side to just appreciating that maybe the grass isn't always greener. Maybe you have an incredible platform here and you make a lot of people happy and being part of something that generates over $4 billion for a giant company that's its own kind of power and its own kind of, it's moving the needle in a different way. Speaking of that and thinking back to when you were an actor before Grey's, one of the first things I ever saw you do outside of Grey's was a punked episode. Do you remember yes. this? Yes, of course. How could I forget it? So the punked episode, I don't know how many years ago it was, but you were like outside at a restaurant and I can't remember it all, but someone was trying to punk you and tell you that your husband, like the, the waitress was flirting with your yes, husband. Yes. And the thing that got me, that got my attention, that made you more than that woman who's on that show over there uh-huh. was, because I watched the show, right? Yeah. Was when you called her abroad. <laughs> and I remember yeah. thinking, she's like, you were like, um... I can't believe this bra thinks she can talk to you like that. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, wow, she she has this accent that's not Gray's accent, first of all. So she's really acting and she's like baldy, you know, it was really cool. So I so that accent and all of that, that takes me back to you growing up in the in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've been to your home. I, you know, you've made public your salary and kind of your we all millions of people watch you every week at 18, did you think that you would be doing anything close to this? Or was that like, were you like, I want to be an actor from the time you could think about it? I definitely always knew I wanted to be an actor. Yes, I did. But I also did sort of grow up like Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. Okay. I, I grew up in the mean streets of Boston. Everybody I knew was either a criminal or a gangster. And um, I was Definitely enamored at a very young age 
with the glamour of these people who appeared to ha- who had money and mm. power. And like I said, in, in my environment, the people who had money and power were not doctors or lawyers. They were gangsters. And very much like the gangster movies you've seen, they were our heroes. Mm. You know, we didn't see the bad things they did. We only saw the bags of money they gave us and the beautiful clothes they wore, the big cars they drove, and how they helped all the old women on the street with Christmas gifts at Christmas time. They really were our heroes. Yeah. Um, we never saw any of the bad things. So I definitely grew up wanting to be an actor, but I also grew up wanting to have the power of wealth. And once you got there, because this is really that intersection that I love so much about this show. Where where do you think where do you think that first? Can you remember your first million? I guess if it did, it happened all at once or over time, but can you remember that time? <sighs> wow, I'm going to sound like an asshole, but I really don't. It's not that. It's I don't think you do. I think I think that no, I probably don't. You know, also, I guess in my defense, in the beginning of the show. I worked so many hours that the first five years is honestly just a blur because I was, you're so tired because we're filming 24 episodes and you're literally working 16 hour days every single day. You're just literally crawling home, getting into bed. The alarm goes off, waking up and going, doing all over again. It's a pretty brutal, pretty brutal schedule. Um, one hour drama. And a million dollars is really three to four hundred thousand dollars at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And 20 million is only 10. Yeah, absolutely. People's. Yeah. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But once you got there, so you're you're thinking this way as you're growing up, you're seeing what you're seeing, you're wanting what you want. Do you remember the first time you felt you were powerful or that you had leverage? I don't know. I think that I think feeling powerful comes in different stages. If you felt that way at any point, does that mirror what you thought it was going to be when you were a y- younger teenager? You know, because you said yes. before. Yes. It yes. Did. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, a very tricky statement to make. Do you right. remember feeling powerful? Because at the end of the day, we want to maintain our humility. Right. Absolutely. So if we think of ourselves as powerful, there's a balance Right. I have two daughters and a son and and every minute is teaching moment for, for, for me with them. There's a real balance of feeling powerful enough to do good, but not feeling so powerful that you take advantage of that. You know where I where I draw that and much different level than you. But when I started feeling, because I, I felt powerless for 35 years, mm-hmm. no money, no, you know, leverage. When I started feeling powerful is when I could be powerful for other people. Right. When I could pick up a phone and say, this person wants a meeting with you. Right. And it happened. Right. Or this person needs this amount of money. I'm going to get it, make sure they get it so they can do the thing that they want to do. Right. That was powerful. It's never me or, you know, I'm sure you walking into a room and just everyone stand up because I'm here. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's no, it's, it's, it's sort of like, I think what makes you feel powerful or, or makes me feel powerful is, is specifically that is hearing how, you know, last week there was a, I think an article in the, um, in JAMA, Journal of American Medicine. And there was a, a, a graph in there that said the calls to the sexual assault hotline after a certain episode of Grey's Anatomy spiked. I forget what the number is now. I tweeted that article out, and I wasn't even really in that episode. That was a standalone episode directed brilliantly by Debbie Allen, our American treasure. Mm. But it's things like that. It's every time I walk down the street and moms come up to me and hug me and say, you know, my daughter is a surgeon because of you. So that's it's, it. you know, that's the power. The other downside to power is that really sort of drives me nuts is like if I'm let's say on set and I say something people like scatter like ants the weight of it and it's like all I said was I want a piece of pizza I didn't ask for 16 boxes to show up now I'm demanding pizza 
you know, I have so, to say that is so interesting. There's because- a there's a there's a flip side to the to the perception of power that that makes me crazy where I literally have to watch what I say, because then all of a sudden, if I say, oh, wouldn't you love a piece of pizza right now? I think about pizza sometimes. I think about ice cream sometimes. <laughs> I, you know, it all of a sudden, rolling up. yeah, or, you know, I'm using that analogy. It, it could be more serious things. You know, I make a comment about something or someone and all of a sudden it gets taken to this nth degree that it didn't need to be taken yeah. to, you know, and it's just like, guys, I just said, stop freaking out when I talk. And it, you you're know, like Dottie Henson. It's like, you know, if I cough, four bottles of water show up. I don't know. So, Do you so, feel like you can fight with people? Because no. it's, like, it's like unbalanced. No, can't can't fight with people. No, but you no. Have, you you talk. No way. Of, you are can't um, ex- can't express any sort of uh, frustration or anger. Because then no. your weight of your words will get them fired or will get them sent away from the room or you win. You win. Well, in every, no, no, no. Is that not, not the this case? day and age? No, oh, so no, no, mama. <laughs> what do you? So how do you mean? What is it? To you got to be careful. Oh, you got to be careful because mm-hmm. it'll be taken out of context. It'll yeah. be blown up. It'll, it'll be used be, against you. Your advocacy can be used as a weapon against you. Mm. And um, in this era of Time's Up and Me Too, we're not tolerating toxic workplaces. Right. And if if I become a voice of for other women, for standing up for people and I become very vocal about something, about toxic workplaces, then I have to be even more careful. Right. Because anything I do will be perceived as doing that thing that you advocate against. So your advocacy becomes a weapon to be used against you, is what I have found. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. That's, you know, happened to me recently. And uh, the idea has been brought up to mm. me that that your advocacy makes you a target. And yeah. I thought, wow, that's an interesting concept that you don't think about when you just are, are advocating to help someone. It's like well, it's people are a- dying to catch you doing the thing that you're so vocal about. You know, well, it's almost something. a glass house thing taken to the nth degree. Yeah. Because the thing is, we each person can be a complex being and you can be at all at the same time. You can want something to be a certain way and think that something is morally correct. And you can also be be at fault. You can also make a mistake or you can also do that. And then in some cases, your non mistake can be taken because there's this perception, right? You talk about power. Yeah. Which is something you could talk about all day. I don't know if you've ever read the 47 Laws of Power. I've listened to it. Yes, I have. Um, It's interesting because real power and perception of power are two different things. And when people perceive you as powerful, it changes the way they behave. Yeah. It's a proximity. I did this... um, poll on Twitter. It was just like a random thing that I did because I was just curious about it. And I asked people, I said, what do you think is the most kind of powerful leveraged thing? And the four choices, if I can remember correctly, were like having money, having proximity to money, someone who has money, having vision and creativity and talent, or being like a good person, basically. And it was funny because like half the people kind of generally said having the money, but Mm. the other half just by odds, was a combination of all three of the others. So if a person doesn't have the money themselves, they can combine being close to someone who does, hopefully having vision and creativity and being a good person, and they can have as much power as the person who has all the money. If you don't have one of the three, you don't have as much power as the the other one. Hmm. That's That's what I got from that. There's also, there's also fame. Which is a different kind Whoa, of power. Yeah. So when you take the combination of my outspokenness and talking openly about money, combine that with fame that is perceived in different ways, mm-hmm. depending on who's doing mm-hmm. the perceiving. 
but fame is a different is a, is a different currency, mm-hmm. but a relevant currency all the same because there's a perception about high profile people is just automatically people judge right no matter whether you're a musician an athlete an actor a politician in your experience what can't fame and money buy you happiness truly. and love truly yeah. okay and in your experience also do this is kind of random but do most actors want to be musicians and most musicians want to be actors. Have you seen that? <laughs> I, kind of I don't know. I that. think that artsy people are artsy people. It's, you yeah. know, and I think it's generally an actor's nature or an entertainer's nature to want to try different mediums. Yeah. You know? And you think of yourself as an artist first? Aside from family, do you think yourself, when, when you think of the different crafts that you... Yeah, I definitely do. I guess it's an interesting question to pose to me because... I generally do think of myself as an artist first, but I'm really, really balanced with business because if I wasn't so business minded, I would have never stayed on a show. If I was 80% actor and 20% business, I would never have stayed on a show for 16 years. So I clearly have an interest in business for me to want to keep having the benefit of my salary for my other pursuits. Yeah. Houses are one of my things. You know, I love decorating them. Mm-hmm. I love building houses. Um, do you sell them? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, and not always at a profit, yeah. you know, I've made some mistakes. I, I am passionate and that's, that's actually funny where my husband and I get into arguments about, you know, my passion because I get a vibration when I go into a house, right? And I get a vision for what it should be, what it could be, what I want it to be. And that house may not be in the best neighborhood or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Financially, it may not make the most sense. The most sense. But creatively, I'm like, but Mm. the room flow, the vibe, the light coming in the windows. So I think uh, truly uh, I'm equal part. Mm. artists and, and business person. I really don't think of myself as more one than the other. I mean, I, I love to cook and I love to design houses and I love to decorate at Christmas time. And the, you know, those are really my mediums for art, but then I love the challenge of, can I sell the house? And can I, yeah. you know, yeah. it, right now I'm, I'm exploring more business opportunities than I ever have in my life just because I, financially I'm in a place now where I can do that. Yeah. So, so I'm learning more every day and investing and investing in startups. So I'm growing my business mind. I think the acting piece of my mind, I have down, even though I've been doing the same job for so long, I know how to tap into my emotional intelligence and, and use that tool. It's a sixth sense at this point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And because you just said you're investing in startups now, I'm going to get a thousand calls to make an introduction. <laughs> I am not introdu- introducing you to Ellen uh, <laughs> for these uh, investments, but um, ha- because there's so many people who will be interested in how you w- were even able to see some of those deals, just in curi- out of curiosity, did you just kind of look into that startup world and say, oh, I like that and I'll get in touch with them? Or did were things, are things kind of brought to you um, uh, deal flow wise? That's an interesting question. I love that question. And this is going to sound, I don't know, a little bit kooky, possibly, especially to business minded people, but I'm very, very spiritual. And um, I've manifested my whole entire life. And it's working. um, Anything I ask the universe for, I've been lucky enough to be able to to have it come to me. It's summoned by your vision of it. Yeah. So I had a conscious thought that. I want to be more active in business. I want to learn business more. I want to invest in startups. This is a, a different piece of my brain that now I want to use. And I'm, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to still have make the money on the show and be able to exercise this different piece of my brain. You know, um, I, I just put it out in the universe. Obviously, I tell my team. But it's funny, it's because all the opportunities aren't necessarily just coming from my business manager, although he's fantastic, mm. um, coming from all over, yeah. you know. They're finding you if they they're if finding it needs me. to yeah. happen. Yeah, because I, I, I put the vibration out there. It's it's very interesting experiment for me. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I I talk to all sorts of people with all sorts of thoughts on that. And so I, I'm going to forever be on a journey of understanding that. Yeah. I definitely talk about envisioning something for yourself and going after it. So while I don't kind of go with the secret type of thing, I definitely go for you have to see it in your mind's eye. Like when I, 2015, I said, I'm going to invest in 100 companies led by underrepresented people. I had $12 in my bank account and I'm sleeping on a blow up bed. So people thought it was crazy. And then we reached that three, two years early. But I saw it as clear as day. I promise you. Uh-huh. I promise you I saw it as clear as day that that was going to happen. Because it's part of its intuition. Hmm. You know, it's like, and, and it's also, you know, talking about the artist in me or the artist in you. There has to be a creative mind behind. You have to have a level of creativity in order to come up with this idea. That's right. Right. It's not all just like mathematics and STEM and yeah, is a different sort of. Spreadsheets and you can't, you can't even, there's I, that, I hear that you, creative yeah. piece of your mind is something that always has to be exercised. And maybe I am so hungry creatively to do new things that I get, you know, I have some great ideas for some businesses that I want to start mm-hmm. because I'm so hungry creatively. And you recognize that in others, the, the, the startup founder is a very misunderstood person and someone who is is very it's very specific so it's interesting that you're able to kind of see that because a lot of people have a a huge risk aversion to startups and all of that and it seems like you have that adventurous side to you i don't want to take up any more of your time i know that um just this time is we've actually gone over my allotted time and i just want to thank you so much because this is this is amazing and i i really appreciate it and thank you and i uh, i look forward to more and more and whatever you do for for the next 50 years. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you coming here. I appreciate you wanting to interview me and coming to my house. It's been fun to talk to you and um, you're equally inspiring. So I think that, you. you know, people vibrate on the same frequency. They come together for a reason. So this was definitely meant to be so we can inspire each other. It's Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen was here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. You can also pre-order my first book. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order it at your local indie bookstore. Please do that. Feel free. And online where books are sold, where where, where great books are sold. If you want to go to a specific link, you can go to prh.com slash it's about damn time all together. No no spaces, no slashes, nothing. So prh.com slash it's about damn time. And it'll give you a list of places you can pre-order the book and pre-ordering is huge. The more pre-orders the bookstores see, the more copies they will order and potentially more copies that will get sold and exposed and seen. If you're thinking about getting the book, but you're going to wait until after it comes out, I encourage you to pre-order it. May 5th, 2020 is the actual date. So you have plenty of time to grab it, but try to do it between now and then. If you are interested in advertising on your first million, go to yfmpodcast.com and click on contact you can have yours truly read your ad which is i know lovely uh, or you can send me your own ad all right thanks so much for listening i'll see you next time